The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So what I want to talk about tonight, or the, the, what I'm titling this talk, is Innate Awakening. Innate Awakening. And one little, maybe this is just a disclaimer or, or an explainer. <laughs> uh, Jack Kornfield often says that he has a um, Mahayana view with a Theravada practice. And uh, I would say the same for myself. Now, if you don't know what that means, what I just said, don't worry about it, just forget about it. If you do know what that means, then that might give you some perspective on the flavor and style of my teaching. So um, tonight I wanted to, you know, I thought about a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I decided to share some of the things that I've more recently been interested in teaching and talking about with my students. I actually started off this talk with a whole one idea and it ended up somewhere else, which is what happens often with these kind of talks. And partly, too, I wanted to... Mm, Maybe, I don't know, you know, you, a lot of you have different kinds of experience, but to maybe offer a, a little, maybe or maybe not, a slightly different flavor or a little bit view than sometimes um, some teachers offer. So the first thing I, wanna, I want to um, mention are what, are sometimes called the two truths. Which is very important to the way I teach and um, from my perspective, um, essential in pointing out the actual path to freedom and awakening. So you may or may not have heard of the two truths. Um, Does anybody know what the two... I mean, you don't have to give me the answer, but has people heard of the two truths before? Uh, A little bit, yeah. Sounds like a Buddhist teaching, like maybe half of the Four Noble Truths or something. (laughs) But it's not. It's actually... um, It actually describes a larger perspective of really the nature of reality. And um, it's referring to how reality can be seen as having, the words are a little inadequate, but having two layers or two levels or two aspects. And some of the ways this is described, and these may be familiar to you, is that there's the relative and absolute level. That there, another way of saying is the conventional and the ultimate level or sometimes it's said the personal and the universal level. So, of course, these two layers or whatever we want to call them are, are existing, if you can call it existing, but um, are simultaneous, are not, in, uh, not ultimately <laughs> separate. But it is our generally, for most people I know and meet and study with and teach to, have um, more, uh, much more of a less experience with the full range from the relative to the absolute. 
have more experience, we're pretty familiar with the relative level, the conventional level, the personal level. People know that really well. That's where most people live and think and operate and understand things. And um, yet, to actually have access to full awakening, to actually discover what it really means to have authentic peace, authentic happiness, and a freedom beyond the ordinary experience of suffering. One needs to have a deep taste of what we might call the absolute or the ultimate. And we need experience, sometimes I think of, it, of, of dipping into or tasting or glimpsing that vast emptiness of the Absolute in order to even have a beginning to understand the relative and what our ordinary experience is about. We're so caught in our ordinary experience that we, we don't realize often of what is beyond so it is the opportunity to see beyond this, the simple changing, shifting, um, ephemeral, impermanent aspect of life. All of that which is in flux, which is everything. <laughs> to see beyond the endless stream of our stories and our thoughts and our emotions. To find out where an actual truth, an actual re- reliability exists. In this world of flux and change in form, there is no thing to actually hold on to. There is nothing permanent for us to rely upon. There is nothing here to give us lasting satisfaction. By here I mean in the world of, of form and things that conventionally exist. That's the first noble truth. So we need a mindfulness, um, which is the foundational practice in this tradition. One of its main purposes, main reasons for being, is to actually teach us how to recognize the impermanence of everything. Recognize the impermanence of everything. Recognize that it's not the source of our freedom. It can't possibly be. And begin to open to what is possible beyond that. So I read this quote in the meditation that was from Ramana Maharshi. I'm going to say it again. Let what comes come and let what goes go and find out what remains. So this what remains is what I like to teach about. (laughs) Of course, saying it remains is not quite accurate, but a few of the things you can say that um, what remains is a kind of spaciousness and openness and emptiness, 
And it is the actual source of our deepest wisdom and the love and compassion that is possible for us. And it is the source of the ability to know true peace, a kind of happiness beyond circumstance, complete contentment, freedom. And a kind of silence and stillness that goes beyond conventional sound and, and silence and conventional stillness and movement. And it goes beyond our personalities, our identity, our personal history, our strengths and weaknesses, our concepts and ideas, and beyond being human. So I now like to remind you, as Buddhist teachers do, like to do, (laughs) that we are all metaphorically on the Titanic. We're all metaphorically on the Titanic. This ship is going down. This ship is going down. Each of your ships, so to speak, is going down. This whole experience is going down. And yet most of the time, most of us are, you may have heard this metaphor as well, there's a couple versions of it, but spend our lives rearranging the deck furniture on a ship that is going down. (laughs) Another one, another teacher of mine used to say is trying to get the best berth on the the ship, which is a is a bit of a word play on B-E-R-T-H and B-I-R-T-H. So even our spiritual practice becomes just another rearranging, a nice rearranging of the deck furniture. So we turn our our spiritual practice into a kind of self-improvement project. To be better, to do better, to have more, to be more. And um, unfortunately, all of us tend to do this to some degree. We experience what is called spiritual materialism, sort of gathering a, a list of experiences, of retreats, of teachings, of practices, in order to feel like we're getting somewhere, in order to feel better about ourselves, or and hopefully others might see us in a certain way we'd like to be seen and and hopefully be more successful in life, bolster our self-image, etc. But in the light that the ship is going down, (laughs) in real uh, authentic spiritual experience, all that is extra and a diversion. As Leonard Cohen says, if you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. If you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. So I'm suggesting that it's time to become the ocean. And because then it doesn't matter what happens to the Titanic. 
And another way to put it is the ocean is our true nature. True nature is a very Mahayanic sort of thing to say, so... So our practice is ultimately about, you could say, becoming the ocean. But it's really not exactly that because guess what? We already are the ocean. And we've always been the ocean. We always will be the ocean. We're just confused about who and what we really are. So our practice, our uh, mindfulness, our awareness practices, the different things we do, are really to cut through this confusion and let the light of what is truer come through. So because we are already the ocean, and we don't know it, um, we have, that's why I'm calling this innate awakening, we have the innate and obvious capacity for awakening, awakening to our ocean nature, you might say. And this awakened heart-mind is already present, it's already here, it's already who you are. It's just waiting to be known and waiting to be seen. A kind of profound natural wisdom and compassion. That is... A traditional way to say it is that it's obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion. By our habits, (laughs) by our misunderstanding, by our distractions, by our um, being confused by a limited identity. But you're all here I would think because on some level you have a sense of what I might call your true home, of your true nature, and and there's some kind of wise longing for that. So if we look at the... word innate, I specifically chose that word, innate... Awakening. The dictionary definition includes inborn, inherent, indwelling, natural, intrinsic, instinctive, inbuilt, deep rooted, deep seated, and more modern word <coughs> hardwired. <laughs> and the antonym for innate is acquired, something that is acquired which the definition was, was of that was to buy or obtain something for oneself. How many of you perhaps practice with the hope of obtaining something for yourself rather than having a complete trust in, in the innate quality that is already there? So this is what I want to talk a little bit about, is, um, is helping us recognize our habitual attitude of acquiring, which is extremely pernicious, pervasive in our culture. So 
pernicious and pervasive, we don't actually see it, even if we're not a very acquisitive sort of person. It's sort of how we see reality, that we have and own and possess things that are separate from ourselves. It's deeply ingrained, a rather learned, materialistic and objectified view of the world. It's hard to escape. So we bring that to how we understand our true nature or awakening or meditation or our journey. And this happens in a variety of ways. We often, um, of course, see wisdom as something that's outside of ourself, an object that we're going to get and then have and own and possess as if it's coming from somewhere, someone else. We're going to get some wisdom And we think we can perhaps acquire more compassion by maybe acquiring the ability for compassion. And so um, I hope you do reflect on the subtlety of the acquiring mentality that there's often um, this sense of... uh, We we approach practice with... um, that there's an I, and I'm saying I is a capital I, 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 I who can, you know, get awakened through my effort. I can get enlightenment for myself. And I can make this I more wise and more loving. But it doesn't work that way. It's not like that. But we sort of insist on using our will and our decision-making skills, our executive functions, our personality and temperament, our ego self, our identity structures, our personal histories and stories to think that those can actually get us awakened. We use those to do it right, to get it right, to will ourselves in some way, to force ourselves to be wiser and more loving. So that list I just read of all those characteristics of our small self, all of those can actually at times be aligned with our spiritual unfolding, with our natural process of awakening, or they can be in conflict with it. And often it's some of each. So all those things, our personality, our ego, our identity structures can be problematic, habitual, conditioned, or be informed by wisdom and compassion. Or be driven by habits and delusion. But none of them, absolutely none of that, none of those aspects of yourself are the actual source of wisdom and compassion. You won't find it there. They give it a good shot often, (laughs) do the best they can. But none of those aspects of your personality and ego self or small self can create authentic wisdom and compassion. None of it can make it happen. Although they can be affected by, healed by, and can express the deeper level and profound source 
of the wisdom and compassion of awakening. So, if this small, so-called small self, there's nothing wrong with a small self. That's not meant as a criticism. It's just small. <laughs> it's just limited. And rather contracted. Um, but if the small self is directing our practice and directing our life and directing our understanding, what you will see happening, and I often see this in students, is that we will try to use our thinking mind to understand non-thought. It doesn't really work. We'll try to do non-doing. It really doesn't work. We work really hard at relaxing. It doesn't work. We try to imagine the non-self from the limitations of the identification of self and ego. It doesn't work. We strive really hard to be not striving. It doesn't work. And we try to control letting go of control. Does any of that, anyone see any, that ring true for anybody's uh, attempts? <laughs> so what does that mean? That means... Ultimately, that we need to realize that there's another way of being, another way of knowing, that the process is beyond all of that. And as I said, the small self can be our ally or our obstacle. And so part of our practice is to make it our ally. our ally in actually discovering this other way of being and knowing, of discovering the larger reality, to understanding and glimpsing and tasting and eventually beginning to rest in, live from that. Really, um, you know, one of the main things, or maybe in a certain sense, the only thing that this small self can do and this is important, is really to create the optional conditions for an opening. The optional conditions for cutting through delusion. The optimal conditions for allowing the clouds and veils of confusion and misunderstanding to disperse. So... It's sort of uh, our process, the process of our, our journey is really more like gardening. I often use the gardening metaphor. With some, I was, I used it before I came to California, I live in the redwoods now and gardening isn't, you know, I just, the forest does its own gardening. <laughs> um, but I used to have a huge organic vegetable garden in New England. And with some knowledge and proper effort, you might call that wise view and and wise effort, we can create the optimal conditions for things to grow, and then they will, naturally, but not because we did it. <laughs> There's a greater process going on here, beyond our personality and our personal efforts. We, like the garden, you aren't the source of the plants, or the growing, or the life, or the flowering, or the fruiting, but you create the optimal conditions for that to happen. 
But it is whatever you want to call it, a greater universe, ultimate nature, your true nature, whatever we call it, the absolute, the ultimate, Buddha nature. That's what allows it to happen and we get out of the way and take, have the courage to begin to drop the obscuring blocks of our own personality. When I say that, I don't mean we get rid of our personality by any means. It's really dropping our identification and fixation on it and then begin to see the actual source, the innate source of awakening, the innate source of wisdom and love and compassion. And we begin to see beyond this changing field, this incredibly dreamlike, ephemeral changing field of experience into awareness itself, which is partly what I was pointing to in the meditation. The awareness, the openness from which everything arises. This is from Tara Brock, who's a insight meditation teacher on the East Coast. What actually allows us to be happy is the background space of silent, allowing awareness. And also to do this, to create the optimal conditions, we need to fully surrender into the here and now. And this is from Ajahn Amaro. Some of you may be familiar with him. Thai forest monk. We use such phrases as this moment, but they're not quite accurate because they still can give us an impression of the present as a small fragment of time. For even though it is just a moment, the present is limitless. Letting go of the structures of the past and future, we realize that this present is an infinite ocean. And the result of this realization is living in the eternal and the timeless. So I'm going to stop there and let's just sit quietly for a minute and then there's plenty of time (laughs) for any kind of discussion or questions or whatever you like. And in this moment, again, of relative silence, can you notice the objects of awareness? Can you notice awareness itself?
Has anyone here sat with me before or heard a Dharma talk before? No? Yeah, you look familiar. <laughs> okay, so we have, I mean, we have some time for any comments or questions or discussions or inquiries. Anybody have something to... And please um, say your name before you speak. I might remember it. Somebody might remember it. I'd like to know. It's always, I want to say, a little odd for me. I work a lot with a, a group. Of course, I walk into groups like this a lot too. But um, it's always like, who are these people? What do you bring here? What do you know? What have you done? What's happening? What's in your heart and mind? So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. So I'll ask a more specific question. Did anything I say resonate for you or not resonate for you? Anything have particular interest or... Of course, you can ask something other than anything I talked about too. So what's your name? My name is Rick. Oops. Is it on? There it is. It's My name is Rick. Rick? Yes. Okay. Does your personality fall away? Does no. Does go yourself? Personality you and temperament remain with you. But what do you feel then? How do you? If you're caught in that, state. it's like your body doesn't fall away either. It, it, they're actually connected: personality, temperament, body, neurons, so forth. What? So, ask your question again. What do you feel? Would it say? Elaborate your question. Elaborate on that. Yeah. It's hard to say <laughs> because it's feeling that I'm talking about. That's. Um, It's like you're there, but you're not there. So you're looking at it, but things are still existing. It, it, it's it's hard to say. It it is hard to say, <laughs> but um, so, but you're you're trying to explore what 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 is that like then if you're not totally identified with personality and so well, forth. What is it like to live from awareness? Is well, it's that like if you're fully in the now. Mm-hmm. The past and present fall away. The past, 
past, not the present. The present's always there. It's the future and the past. Future and past don't exist. Right. They only, but they do exist in the sense of our memory and our thoughts in the present. Through so the past and future only exist as a thought happening in the present. So you become aware that you have thoughts in the present that have material related to what you think is the past. And so you begin to know that thoughts are just happening in the present. Feelings are just happening in the present. Sounds, body sensations are just happening in the present. Just stuff happening happening, and it's something you experience. So as you become more, what I would say, more grounded, I, I often call it ref- taking refuge in awareness or resting in awareness. Sometimes, say, living from awareness, which is really what this path is pointing to. Then... Um, There's all there's the the, the flow and the the, the um, everything is still here, so to speak. That doesn't change. But your clarity and understanding and your ability to not be reactive to it reactive or changes. Identify with it. What? Or identify with it? Identify with it? You no longer identify with it. Yeah, correct. You just see it as what it is, which is just phenomenal things, mysterious phenomenal things uh, flowing in the here and now. There's a card from the Morgan's Tarot deck that has, who is watching the cosmic drama? I'm sorry, I can't. For some reason, can you put it closer? Closer to my mouth? Okay. In the Morgan's tarot deck, there's a card that says, who is watching the cosmic drama? And it's, it's a question posed, mm-hmm. which is not quite your identity, but something beyond you is aware. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, they often say there, you know, there's thoughts without a thinker, or that there's ob- observing without an observer. There's observing going on, there's awareness going on, but there's not a... It's more like you, you, you rest in something that is limitless and beyond, it's, not, it's beyond your own, you know, the personality and the identity is like this tight little box that we seem to insist on living inside. And we think that that's what reality is and that's what should be and it's actually quite painful. And um, we begin to uh, open or soften or expand so that there's um, more of a limitless or boundless quality that isn't our, our particular identity or our particular personality. Or seem, they often say it's sort of the nat- nature, the nature of, I don't know what, you know. Ultimately, who knows what it is? Nobody does. Buddha didn't either, I don't think. Or maybe he did, but he said... He didn't. He didn't explain it that way. What? It, why this is here? Or why it's like it is? Who knows? He never explained why. Why, why do we retreat into that? Why what? do we retreat inside? We retreat inside our. Yes, in, that little, we little do. self. But that little self is insecure. Yes. Yeah. It really can't deal with the outside world, so it deals with itself. Yeah. It, Cocoons, basically. Correct. And um, 
That's why you need to sort of test the waters outside <laughs> and begin to realize not, it's not outside the world there. All of this world here is part of this. I mean, all our understanding of the world here is part of this. So what I'm suggesting is that I mean, that words really, um, and all traditions say this at some point, words are inadequate. But you test the waters of just allowing of, um, the best way I can say it is just opening, relaxing and opening, finding out. Thank you. May I offer some phraseology that has been helpful to sure. me? Um, the, you know, what do you feel um, is that I am still aware of everything that was self, but I just don't believe it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that worked for me. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe to, to add on to that, you know, we have all this stuff we think of as ourself, but it's just a, a, a thought or a phenomena or a, a thing that goes on or something conditioned, a habit we learned, and then we start seeing that, oh, okay. You know, and I, I don't have to buy into it or is kind of what you're saying. I, it's just a sort of fleeting a, a, a part of the experience of the flow. Sort of like watching a movie and knowing that it's a movie. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, there's a lot of metaphors that all of them are ultimately inadequate, but they are helpful. And, that's, and, and you know, another one is, is sort of this awareness, this vast, boundless field of awareness is, is, uh, is like a mirror. That's a common one. It's a mirror... And then all the phenomena are, is what's reflected in the mirror. And then all that, whether it's beautiful or ugly, it doesn't affect the mirror. The mirror doesn't care. <laughs> Awareness really doesn't care. <laughs> if it's good or bad or beautiful or ugly, it's just aware. And um, that begins to give us freedom. Not to behave badly. I mean, we could, but it's the freedom from... having so much reactivity and giving things so much meaning that they don't have, so much weight and um, control over our lives, all kinds of things. So. Yeah. Um, I was very, I really identified with what you said about sort of bringing an acquisitiveness to one's own practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm someone who spent way too long in school and approached it in that very acquisitive fashion, thinking like, all right, I've got to get these letters at the end of my name, and now I'm going to go get those letters at the end of my name. I don't think I fully understand how to approach a deep study of something without coming it from that perspective, you know? like. Mm -hmm. As someone who's new to meditation, that's just kind of how I've thought about it. I'm going to take this class, and then I'm going to take mm -hmm. that class. I'd like to try a retreat and what have you. Um, 
So how would you recommend that someone approach that kind of <laughs> study? Well, there, I want to say there is study, and there's conventional study, and there's lots of things you can study, and there's lots of, <coughs> of um, Buddhist theory you can study. There, I mean, there's all of that, and that can be um, helpful to a certain degree, and that can be supportive to a certain degree, and that can satisfy that part of the mind that wants to do that. But that won't in of itself, that in, how do I say that? That in of itself is not the process of awakening, which is what you're asking. In some ways, the meditation itself is inviting you, is giving you the opportunity to stop seeking something, to stop trying to get something, and just open. So the meditation itself is teaching you how to do that. It's telling you to stop and just be here and be with what is. And the more you do that, really do that and really trust that, because I still I work with people who for years they yeah I'll be I'll be present in order to get something. <laughs> I'll be present to get really good at being present. <laughs> or um, you know if I'm present enough then I'll stop suffering. Whatever it is, some agenda. But this is the complete release of agendas and the complete just trust and opening to f- to that uh, that. Um, the deeper truth and understanding that you actually seek is already here and available if you stop getting in its way. So I guess that's what I would say, that um, let the practice itself, the simplicity of the practice of meditation, begin to take hold and so that other acquisitive side, which isn't in itself bad, it's just not going to, it'll keep you locked just in, in the cycles of going round and round. It won't get you free, but it can support you. So, is that somewhat helpful? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Oh. What's your name, babe? Paul. Paul, and what was your name? So, anything else for this evening? I just want to thank you for the and Leonard quote, Leonard Cohen quote. I thought that was pretty cool. What's your name? Mary. Okay, great. So I have a long drive <laughs> ahead of me tonight back, but it's always uh, I want to say a pleasure to come here and to be invited to teach periodically here. So 
Um, I want to thank you for coming and participating. I want to thank the powers that be, which was Andrea, (laughs) for inviting me. (laughs) And I guess she'll be back soon. I think she's up at the at Spirit Rock. And um, um, anyway, I hope hope to see you again. And if you're in Santa Cruz, uh, you can look at Bloom. It's Bloom of the Present dot org um, which is is the website and bloom of the present by the way comes from Thoreau one of my favorites favorite writers Um, he talked about the bloom of the present moment that there are times when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment and um, what else do I want to say I guess that's That's about it. So let's, um, let's uh, just do a little dedication to formally end for tonight. Take another breath, another chance to release everything. And wake up. I do want to say it's that simple. Too simple. Too simple, what I mean by that is our minds are so complicated we can't believe it's that simple. So may we dedicate our efforts tonight, our efforts to get here, and our effort to be present, our effort to allow, our effort to listen, our wise effort in letting go and releasing. May we dedicate our good heart our sincere longing for our true home and the positive energies that we bring. Dedicate these to all beings everywhere so that all beings awaken to their true nature, so that all beings everywhere understand who and what they truly are. safe drive home and be glad you're not driving over 17.